0: Greetings, and thank you for tuning in. More Americans died during the US Civil War than all of the other wars that the US participated in combined. Over 600,000 Americans died during the US Civil War. That represented 2% of the American population. So to put that into some perspective, in the war in Iraq, 4,500 Americans died, and each death, a tragedy. During this COVID crisis, 60,000 Americans have died, and each death a tragedy. But if 2% of the American population had died, that's almost 7 million Americans perishing. In the peacekeeping efforts uh, that Canada was involved in in Afghanistan, 158 Canadians died during that time, and each death a tragedy. So far in the COVID, uh, about 3,000 Canadians have died, but if 2%, Of the Canadian population had died, we'd be looking at over 750,000 Canadians perishing. So the U.S. Civil War was devastating, absolutely cataclysmic war for the U.S. and for the first three years that this war raged, the South was actually winning decisively, led by their two top generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Now Christian historiographers cite two turning points for the Civil War. The first was President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of 1862, giving the slaves their freedom. According to Christian historiographers, the second turning point came on April 30th, 1863, when President Lincoln called for a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer because of what he perceived to be the sin of slavery and the pride of the nation. Listen to the words of President Abraham Lincoln. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which has preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us, It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power and confess our national sins and pray for clemency and forgiveness. President Abraham Lincoln led his nation in penitential prayer. What is penitential prayer? Penitential prayer is basically this. When during a time of corporate or national affliction, you humbly seek God's favor through repentance and confession, on behalf of God's people. That's penitential prayer. When during a time of widespread corporate national affliction, you humbly seek God's face, seek his favor through confession of sin, through repentance from sin, on behalf of God's people. Thus, we read in Chronicles, for example, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Today I want to take you through a penitential prayer found in the book of Daniel. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or swipe there to Daniel chapter 9. This penitential prayer that Daniel offers was very appropriate for his context, his situation, and I'm going to get into that in a bit. But I also believe it's really appropriate and fitting for our context today. So Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We And our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses, And sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You fulfill the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong, Lord, and Keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear to our God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of a city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake. My God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a living word and is spoken for generations, for millennia, and we're grateful that you preserved it for us and given it to us in order to shape us as your people, uh, to shape us as individual sons and daughters of the Most High God through Jesus Christ. God, open up our eyes to see what you'd have us see through this text. Open up our ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to us. And give us soft, responsive hearts to your leading, to your prompting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this prayer that Daniel offers, I want to look at the reasons that he offers this prayer, the reasons for penitential prayer. And then I want to look at the attitude, the attitude that's characteristic of penitential prayer. So let's let's begin with the reason for penitential prayer. And according to our text, there's two reasons why Daniel prays this way. First, his exilic circumstances. His exilic circumstances. Look at the first couple of verses there. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign. So where is Daniel when he begins to launch out in this prayer? He is in Babylonian exile. So what is exile? What is a Babylonian exile? So basically, to kind of summarize it, I could say this, that a long time previous, God spoke to the patriarch Abraham and promised that he would make his descendants, which is the nation of Israel, a nation. And so his descendants uh, are in Egyptian bondage for 400 years, and God rescues them out of Egyptian bondage, takes them into the wilderness, prepares them while they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and then ushers them into the land of Canaan and goes ahead of them and establishes them in the land of Canaan, ancient Palestine. And that is their land. And so Israel, for the first time, becomes a nation like the other nations around them. They are a formalized, real nation with God as their Lord, God as their head. But as God prospers his nation, his people, Their hearts begin to grow cold towards God and they begin to turn away from the covenant and turn away from the law of Moses and they begin to indulge in immorality of all kinds and they begin to turn away from God into idolatry and worshiping the gods, the false gods of the nations all around them. And God raises up prophet after prophet, generation after generation to rebuke his people to say, repent, repent or else, repent, or else, repent, or else. And there are times when the people would would listen to the prophets, and they would repent, and there would be a time of spiritual renewal. But these were very limited, and almost isolated, because over the course of the history, they refused to repent. And then eventually, or else happens. And we read about or else at the end of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, this is what we read, chapter 24. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. And that's the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence. So God raises up the Babylonians to come in and waylay his people for their idolatry and their excessive sins. And he takes them up, uproots them, and sends them far away into Babylonian exile. And so they are now living in geopolitical exile. They are a nation without a nation living on the margins of Babylonian society. So they are away from the land. They're in geopolitical exile, but they're not just in geopolitical uh, exile, like a nation without a land, but they are in sociocultural exile. Meaning they are now inhabiting and living on the margins of the society in Babylon in which they now live. right? Remember, Daniel, his generation, and the generation before them, they were living in the ancient land of Palestine where their religion, their faith, was at the hub of Palestinian life. Like, the God of the land was the God of Israel. And everybody was familiar with the law of Moses and the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, um, and all those sorts of things, and now they're ripped up from the land and they're taken to a foreign land surrounded by foreign people who know nothing about their religion, know nothing about their God. The God of Israel, who's the God of Israel? Oh, the God of Israel who's supposed to protect you from us? Because we destroyed you guys, so our God's bigger than your God. So the Babylonians and the surrounding nations that they now live in know nothing about the law of Moses, they don't know anything about the covenant, they don't know about the God of Israel who is a weak God anyway, They're living on the margins of their society. They've been pushed to the margins of their society. They were once the hub. Now they're living in sociocultural exile. Well, that's kind of our context in the church of the West, right? Like Europe, for sure, for generations, and in Canada, the church in Canada, and in parts of the United States, we are in sociocultural exile. A generation and a half ago, or two generations ago, the church mattered. Like the church was at the hub, at the heart of Canadian. Let's just focus on Canada, in church in Canada. And there's all kinds of examples of this, but very briefly, in the 1950s, weekly church attendance, weekly church attendance in Canada in the 1950s peaked out at 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10 Canadians went to church, not just at Easter, not just at Christmas, every week. Every week. The universities that, that uh, are part of our life in Canada, many of them were founded on Christian principles. My school, McMaster University. Like, it, the McMaster the motto is Colossians is taken right out of Colossians 115. Like The church mattered. Like It's only been since the 1990s when you were allowed stores opened up on Sundays because you're not allowed to shop on Sundays. That's about the church. But that was then, this is now. Now the church, we live in sociocultural exile on the margins of our society, whereby we are mocked, we are hated, we are disrespected. We've reached our best before date in the eyes of most in our society. We're in sociocultural exile. And so like Daniel, penitential prayers, as it was appropriate for Daniel to pray, In our particular context, it's also appropriate for us to be praying. So his exilic circumstances, that's one reason why he offers his penitential prayer. Another reason is scripture. Scripture. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, and fasting, and in sackcloth, and ashes. So Daniel has been reading Jeremiah, and he comes to Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14, and he reads that, oh, the Babylonian exile, which I've been living in, is supposed to end. And so rather than let go and like God, it prompts him to pray for the end of the Babylonian exile, that God would fulfill this prophecy. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Typically, we pray because we need something. I need a job, need money, I need a house, need a place to live. And these are all very legitimate reasons to pray. But where does the Bible fall on this list? Like Daniel is reading scripture and it prompts him to pray. The Bible prompts us to pray. It commands us to pray, right? Paul says, pray without ceasing. That's a command, pray without ceasing. But the Bible doesn't just command us to pray, but it it actually gives us prayers to pray. Like Daniel 9 is a prayer that we can pray, that we can learn to pray. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Paul has these short but wonderful prayers woven throughout the different letters that he writes to the church, right? The Bible prompts us to pray, and the Bible... It really should shape how we pray, right? The Bible, Scripture teaches us how to pray. It teaches us the mindset that we, that we should have as we pray. It, it teaches us the principles by which we can pray and the values that we ought to be espousing as we engage uh, with God in prayer, right? The, the Scripture doesn't just prompt Daniel to pray. It actually forms the backbone of this prayer. Because if you look at this prayer and you compare this prayer with a prayer that, Uh, In 1 Kings 8, like 500 years earlier about, Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple, Daniel actually uses that prayer to kind of structure this particular penitential prayer. So the Bible should shape and prompt us to pray. That's why I no longer, like back in the day and for for a long time, I used to uh, divide my Bible reading and my prayer time. Right, I'd read the Bible, and then okay, that's done. Close it up, and now I pray. But now, when I pray, I pray open Bible. Right, I have the Bible open, and as I as I read Scripture and reflect on Scripture, I'm also praying Scripture. As God speaks to me through His Word, I'm speaking to God through prayer, uh, according to what He's showing me in His Word. That's that's one of the reasons why I like the prayer encounter on Wednesdays because Pastor John is is helping us, getting us in the in the habit of incorporating scripture and using scripture to pray, to shape how we pray. So those are the reasons for penitential prayer. Now I wanna show you the attitude for penitential prayer, the type of attitude we need to walk in and exercise and have to offer penitential prayer. And there's three aspects um, to the attitude for penitential prayer. Firstly, penitential prayer comes from a contrite heart. Right, it comes from a contrite heart. Look at verse 3 again. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. A penitential prayer, it comes from a contrite heart. There are times to be jubilant before the Lord, to celebrate and shout with the cries of joy, but then there are times when we need to be quiet. We need to be somber. We need to be serious. David prayed this in Psalm 51 the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Penitential prayer comes from a contrite heart, and there are four characteristics I want to show you here of a truly contrite heart. A contrite heart firstly affects how you approach God in prayer. Right? In verse 3, Daniel says that he pleaded with the Lord God. He pleads with him, and the word plead, it, it means to seek, to pursue. This is not a one-off, a drive-by prayer that Daniel is offering here. He is pursuing God in prayer. I mean, the fact that he's mixed in with this is fasting, like nobody fasts for like 10 minutes, right? At least most people don't. Uh, you Fasting presupposes a long period of time. Daniel is pursuing God. He set it out in his heart and his mind to pursue God on behalf of God's people. A contrite heart affects how you live your daily life. Like, remember, Daniel here, he's interrupting his routine by pursuing God with sackcloth and ashes. Like, Daniel is a high up. He is high up the political food chain in the kingdom, and so as a high-level administrator, he would, have had, he would have been busy. If he's going to do his job with integrity, and we know Daniel has lots of integrity, he's a busy man. He's got meetings with this group, and then he's got to go from that group to meetings with this group, and then he's got to meet with the king for this, and then he's got all these meetings. But he tells the secretary, clear my schedule. I'm going to pursue God. I need to pursue God on behalf of my people. And, and sackcloth and ashes, So he takes off his $3,000 Armani suit and puts on a burlap sack. Why? As an expression of humiliation, as an expression of sorrow, as an expression of being humble on behalf of God's people to seek to pursue God through penitential prayer. A contrite heart affects what you say in prayer. Let's keep reading in verses 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed... Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. Penitential prayer centers around confession, confessing our sins and repenting from our sins. And a contrite heart affects your spiritual outlook. Notice how Daniel prays in his prayer. Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. We have turned away. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed the Lord. We have not sought the favor of the Lord. He doesn't say they. Like, oh, they, you're people, Lord. Because he could have, right? Twice the angel comes from God's presence and says, Daniel, man, you are highly esteemed before the Lord. And the prophet Ezekiel refers to Daniel as being one of the most righteous people who ever lived. So if anybody could say they have sinned, it's Daniel. Lord, fix your people because they rebelled. They've not listened to him. He could have said they, he doesn't. They plus me equals we. Because he's standing in the gap for his people. This righteous man is standing in the gap for his people and he's taking ownership, if he will, for the sins of the nation. We have sinned. We have sinned. That's penitential prayer. That's a contrite that comes out of a contrite heart. So penitential prayer comes from a contrite heart. The other thing about penitential prayer is that it appeals to God's glory. It appeals to God's glory. Look at uh, at verse 17. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, Lord. Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. For your sake, in the Old Testament, for your sake, for your namesake, is synonymous with your glory, with God's glory. So he's appealing here to God's glory. For the sake of your glory, Lord, I'm offering this request, this petition. You know, oftentimes we, we kind of pray like God owes us one. I mean, we never say that with our mouths, but really in our heart of hearts, we kind of can pray like, you know, God, I could have had this job. I could have taken this job, but, you know, for the sake of other people and things, I took this job. So, you know, you kind of owe me one. Could have went to this school, could have went to this church, could have moved to this city and had a better life. But for the sake of church and community and stuff and family, I've I've settled here. So God, yeah, you kind of owe me one. But the reality is God doesn't owe anything to anyone because, well, he's God, and we're not, right? God seeks his glory, first and foremost, not ours. Because if God sought our glory above his glory, he would be guilty of committing the sin of idolatry. And God is not a sinner. So by definition, God must seek his glory first and foremost, And so that's why God the Son, Jesus, lived his life seeking to glorify God. Jesus prayed this way in his prayer. He said, Father, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work which you gave me to do. God the Son sought to appeal to God's glory to to work for God's glory rather than his own. And if that's God the Son, how much more would that be for us as well? Penitential prayer appeals to God's glory, that God would answer our prayer not for our good, not because we're so good, but for the sake of his glory. And thirdly and finally, penitential prayer appeals for God's mercy. It appeals for God's mercy. Look at the last uh, couple of verses, 18 and 19. Give ear to our God and here, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Penitential prayer appeals for God's mercy. Daniel could have called forth justice. Pour out justice, Lord, on these Babylonians because they've destroyed your people. They've destroyed the holy city of Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. So pour out justice and judgment upon the Babylonians. He could have called forth for justice, but he doesn't because justice had already been served. Remember, repent or else. Repent or else. Repent or else. God poured out justice on his people for their unrepentant ways. Now what his people need isn't more justice. They need mercy. They need mercy. Evangelist Louis Palau tells a story of uh, this mother who approached Emperor Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. Napoleon replied that her son had committed a serious offense twice and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy. Napoleon replied, Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. We don't deserve mercy. In and of ourselves, outside of Christ, we do not deserve mercy, and that's why we need to ask for mercy. Mercy. So back in 1863, the Civil War was raging. And the South was dominating the North, led by their two top generals, dominating the North. And so Abraham Lincoln, in year three of that war, he issues and declares a national day of humiliation and fasting and prayer. And two days after that national day of fasting and prayer, two days after After that day, General Stonewall Jackson, one of the South's top, the South's leading commander, died in friendly fire. And with the South's top general out of the way, the Union forces of the North were able to take Gettysburg and secure that crucial victory that they needed to turn the course of a civil war. And the rest, as they say, is history. That is the power of penitential prayer. Will you pray? Will you begin to offer penitential prayers on behalf of the people, behalf of our country, and God's people, the church? Please pray with me. Hear the word of the Lord. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize uh, that we have failed to live as your people. We have failed to be witnesses from generation to generation. And the situation we have found ourselves in is all of our God, because we've not lived faithfully and we've turned our back, our backs against you and we have, we have followed the ways of idols and we've adopted the idols that are not gods at all, but we've made them into gods of materialism, and hedonism, um, the God of self, Lord. And we ask humbly for your forgiveness. Forgive us for how we have insulted you by turning to other things instead of you. Forgive us for how we have offended you by failing to live faithfully according to the gospel, to live out the gospel lifestyle. We humbly ask for your mercy. Lord, even as you've gotten our attention hugely through this crisis, this COVID crisis, we humbly ask for your mercy, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness. And we pray that you would be doing a new work in your people. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And that as you do a, a new and deeper and fresh work, a refining work, a sanctifying work in your people, in us, that you would begin to work in our country, Lord, turning the heart of our country back towards you. For only you and you alone can do something that huge and that great. And so we entrust ourselves and our country to you, Would you do, it, Lord. Not because we are righteous, because we're not. Not because we are so worthy, because we're not. But for the sake of your glory, Lord, be glorified, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for tuning in, and have a blessed week in the Lord.